You're listening to the greatest multifamily investment advice show. My name is Adam Ross, and now I'm talking everything multifamily for an in-depth conversation, and I will be diving deep into raising capital, deals, and underwriting process. Welcome back to the greatest multifamily advice show. Today we have Sam Maurice, our today's guest with more than 20 years in financial and real estate world with different commercial spaces. Please help me to welcome our guest today. How are you, Sam? Hey, I'm doing great, man. Appreciate being here. Thanks so much for being with us today, and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, Sam, your background is really impressive because you're covering a different perspective here, which is the financial world. As a previous president of a bank and moving to the multifamily, huge multifamily space, what was uh, the motivation for you or the upside to move to the multifamily space and real estate in general? Yeah, you know, it's it's really fun. I, I absolutely love being a banker. It was a great time, man. It, it taught you so many different things. You got so much exposure to so many different industries mm. um, and seeing so many deals. I mean, over that long period, I had about an 18 year career there. Mm. I got to do just hundreds and hundreds of deals, mm. um, be part of thousands of transactions. It was it was just really great to be a part of all of that. But at an early age, I actually started passively investing in multifamily mm. real estate. So mm. I was in, you know, I was in my, you know, mid twenties when I started uh, recognizing, man, passive income—that's just amazing to have at this point. Um, and so I would start investing into other syndication deals. So I was, I mean, I was early on adopter of investing into those types of deals, um, and in doing that. Uh, you know, it really opened my eyes to what wall was out there. And so I sold my last bank in 2018. And when I did that, I said, man, I, you know, I got, I got to go sit on the sidelines for a little while. And so I'm going to go full time into, uh, into real estate. Mm. And, and it was just one of the best decisions I made. It still gave me that, that high of chasing deals. It gave me that in-depth, uh, aspect of, of looking at all the deals and being able to be really ingrained and get granular into those deals um, and to allow me to keep doing the analysis of the things we want and this time just be on the ownership side where you make a lot more money associated with it. So you're not just a banker, you're the president of the bank. How you see your experience on financial world help you to uh, underwrite your deal, especially that you were always on the conservative side of the, of the coin? So how does this help you on, on multifamily? Yeah, well, so, you know, uh, believe it or not, you know, having gone through a lot of different areas and the ups and downs of real estate markets and things, it's allowed me to see, you know, who did what and how they did it, whether that be good or bad for that matter. I mean, we had deals that went bad in 08, 09, right? And, you know, and you could see how those deals went uh, and what the decisions that the, that the ownerships made at that time, whether it was good or bad. Uh, the options that they had available to them um, and how those worked. And I was, you know, I was from a 10,000 foot picture, I was able to see all of how that was working out, what what went well, what didn't go well, how they did what they did, um, who they enlisted to get that help, um, and just all the different aspects of how people were running different things. And it really, uh, it, it equipped me to be able to go, man, that's the right decision on something when this scenario comes up, or man, that's the absolute wrong decision when this scenario comes mm-hmm. up. Or, hey, you know, if you got to take some kind of calculated risk, this would be those areas that you do it in. And so, um, you know, it taught me a lot being in, from that perspective, because, you know, your lender is your biggest partner in the deal really is right i mean you may go out and raise a whole bunch of money but 
the largest amount of cash that comes into those deals is typically from your lender because yeah. we're normally borrowing a lot of that money. And so I was the biggest partner in a lot of these deals, getting mm -hmm. to see all those aspects and being able to request anything I needed at that time, whether it be financials or strategy or having that understanding of what you were doing operationally. Um, and it just it gave me that additional education uh, at the time, it wasn't something I was thinking of at the time to be able to jump into full time. Yeah. It was something, hey, I'm protecting my investment that I'm putting into uh, this deal as in the form of a loan. Right. Mm. Um, and this is uh, this is the knowledge base that I just continue to learn over those you know couple decades of doing it. So right now, before the, the show, we were talking about um, the, the markets and market fundamentals and also. Uh, how does this impact your decision to work on your market? Can we a little bit have an overview of what is the upside of uh, Texas market, especially that you're focusing more on the San Antonio-Houston corridor on doing multifamily and self-storage? Can you basically highlight the, the challenges and the upside of your market? Sure. Yeah, you know, Texas is one of probably uh, probably one of the most attractive markets, I think, in the entire United States as a state. You know, we have uh, we have in migration like crazy here. And what that means is we have we have people moving into this state every day and in pretty significant amounts, too, at that point. Um, and in addition to that, one of the bigger factors that we look at, too, is jobs. Uh, mm. The state is still creating a whole lot of jobs. And when you have when you have jobs, you have people that are moving for those jobs. And when people are moving into those areas, they need a place to live. Right. Mm -hmm. So you have gainful employment. Right. Yeah. And now you're looking for housing associated with that. So uh, we're still real bullish on the state of Texas because of that. Um, and, you know, it's it's actually a fairly diverse state. Right. So we're really you know, a lot of people, when they think Texas, they think oil. Right. Um, and although, yeah, that's actually, you know, it is absolutely a portion of the Republican out here. Um, it's actually probably more specific, more, and I would say that Houston area, more so than it would be San Antonio, Dallas or Austin. But each of the primary cities, they really have their own kind of, you know, their their major employment factor. Hmm. But since the, you know, really since probably the 80s, Houston's really been diversifying out of that oil and gas. Hmm. Uh, they've just been adding a lot more other things. You're seeing now medical, you know, medical hubs and financial hubs and other things that are occurring in the city. But I would just tell you, we're really excited because we keep seeing more and more people moving into the state, right? And jobs being created, which creates the housing um, which creates the the volume of you know that you're going to need to be able to uh, to grow from. As far as some of the challenges, you know, I think I think it's pretty well known that um, you know probably the two biggest challenges for this state as a whole are our property taxes yeah. and and an insurance costs too, really. Yeah. And those the reason we bring that those two factors up is because they're they're somewhat out of the hands of the operator, right? Those yeah. are those are not within your control of what you can do. There are things you can do to control that, but you don't have the ability to go, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and cut property taxes by 50% this year. You just don't have that ability to do that. Um, and so there are certain things and strategies that you can do. I mean, we fight our property taxes every single year and we have a group that helps us to do that. And so every single year we are challenging and or you know going to arbitration and or suing the counties that we're in to be able to to lower that cost associated with it, um, it's you know, more like appealing every year to a little bit. Correct. Yeah, 
Correct. And there's certain things and strategy you can do. Sometimes we'll share numbers with the uh, with the county. Sometimes we don't. Right. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we don't. We don't want them knowing our numbers associated with it. Uh, but there are certain things that you can do and strategies that you can employ to help mitigate uh, those increases. Insurance has probably been one of the biggest ones, though, in the last two years as well. Um, you know, we've had so many uh, catastrophes that have occurred uh, in the state from, you know, massive flooding, uh, hurricanes. Mm -hmm. We had our, we called it the Snowmageddon uh, that we had <laughs> in 19. Uh, yeah. which was really interesting. I mean, we had at the time our portfolio uh, with the group I was at, we had 484 pipe breaks mm. in one day. Wow. So we had 484 pipe breaks in one day. And wow. so that's that's pretty significant from those kinds of challenges. And, and the insurance uh, companies have obviously had to mm. had to shell out a lot of money associated with that. And so we've had people, we've had insurance companies that have left the market. You know, they're no longer underwriting in the state. They don't want to be, they don't want that risk associated with that. So when you have less competition, the pricing is going to go up because, um, you know, to underwrite the deals that you need, that's what's happening. So in the past, certain people would go, you know, well, let's just use a plug number. Let's just use, you know, X amount of dollars per door. And that's how we're going to do the underwriting only to get, when you go out and get your quote, it can be two X, right? Um, so some of the things that we do for that to, to help offset that is we partner really well with different property management companies and, and mainly our larger management companies that have master portfolios where they have properties all over the country. Um, they get typically better deals than our little our little syndication company can get, you know, and so we closed a deal in May. Uh, so just a couple months ago and. The quote that we were given directly was right around a thousand dollars a door for the insurance. Mm. Uh, I know a lot of people. That's that's not unheard of here in Texas, in particular yeah. near the coast, right? So if you're a tier one county, um, especially on the markets too. Yeah, but by moving it over to our property management's master plan that they had, that cost dropped to about seven hundred dollars a door. Well, that $300 a door savings more than than paid for the property management company. And so it was an Correct. easy thing for us to go, hey, you know, if we go with this property management company, they're effectively free to us. Because if we were to go out there and get the property insurance, it would cost us you know, this and we can pay the same amount getting insurance and property mm -hmm. management for the property. And so there's certain strategies you can do and there's certain things that you can do to the property to help lower your premiums associated with it, whether it be property insurance or your liability insurance. Um, and so you just have to be cognizant of that when you're, mm. when you're on. Right. I think one of the other questions now about Texas is uh, uh, product number C, C buildings, especially at 1970s products with the high maintenance and how you can actually underwrite the deal when you're working with especially added value products. And this is one of the things is, I think one of the major things, especially with the appreciation of all of the market, not only the C product, but all of the, the products, especially that you don't have this margin between the interest rate and the cab rate. You don't see an actual uh, margin for, for your profit. So how you're managing this risk with the C products in your market? Yeah, so... Um, it's pretty specific. One of the things, and you, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head right there with the 70s product. So anything that's built before 1980, at least in general for Texas, they were using a different materials. Mm -hmm. And so there's some operational um, challenges that you have when you're dealing with 
uh, aluminum wiring or uh, galvanized piping. And so there's some some things that you're going to have to think about operationally when you buy, when you purchase a property like that. Um, you may need to carry an extra half a maintenance person, right, to be able to handle some of the things that inevitably will occur, um, whether it's plumbing leaks or uh, you know electrical outings or things of that nature. You're going to have to to think about some of that. But you know, really, what it comes down to is location of the property, right? Mm -hmm. And so, I, I, look, you can replace anything on a property anything Correct. anything is replaceable right yeah except the location i can't replace the location yeah i can replace anything on a property but i cannot replace where it's at yeah yeah, yeah. so um buying in the right area is still going to be number one to us because people are going to want to live in certain areas mm. now there's things you can do to upgrade the product mm. Right. And particularly if it, even if it's C-class product, there's certain things you can do to the interiors, make it look nicer to the exteriors to make it look more appealing. Right. But the guts and the bones of it. Right. You still are going to have to deal with. And if you know that going in, this is why knowing, you know, we always call it backing the jockey, not the horse. You want somebody who actually knows the product. Right. To mm. knows what they're at. This is where boots on the ground knowledge and things like that really come into play. Right. Because if if you don't know that there's a difference between a 1985 product and a 1975 product, mm. right? You're probably not the guy that, that anybody should be investing with because mm. there's difference in that. And the due diligence will tell you what all that stuff is, right? If I don't, if I don't know that all the aluminum wiring has been pigtailed, well, that's an issue. That's an additional cost that we're going to have to deal with. There's, a, there's safety issues with that. Mm. If I don't know that uh, the federal stab lock breakers need to be replaced and lenders aren't, aren't lending on that type of product right now, or they're going to force you to do it. It's going to show up in their PCA reports, right? So then you have a problem. Yeah. You have problems. You're going to have to, you're going to have to readjust your budget associated with that to start replacing those. Right. Yeah. And, and not only that, the insurance companies don't want to insure if you have that type of product, right? So you have to sit there and go, there's certain things that you may have to change to a seventies type product to make it one more insurable, lendable, and to operate the way that you need to operate it so that you can get the returns associated with it. And so if you, in your underwriting process and due diligence process, you recognize what those hot buttons are, right? Mm -hmm. And the product is where you want it to be and it still works for the returns you're trying to give to your investors, mm -hmm. you can still do the deal, right? Just look, just because a product's built in the 70s doesn't mean it's any good. It just means, there's certain things you may have to do to that property to make it, like I said, insurable, lendable, and get the returns for the investors. So you just have to, to know it. And that's where, like I said, backing the jockey, not the, the horse, somebody that knows what they're doing is going to be enable you as an investor to go, yep, I can get comfortable with that. 100%. I think you mentioned something about Zanetta immigration. And I think one of the biggest uh, issues here or biggest attraction to uh, Texas, as you mentioned, the net immigration to the Southeast in general, Florida and Texas. But how you see the actual um, like the actual um, split of the tenants, if it's uh, actual A tenants or B tenants, because uh, when you have a net immigration for only uh, A tenants, then you're going to focus only on A product or B product, then C product is going to be in trouble. Unless you see on the ground that this this net immigration with A tenants is helping the other C products too. 
Yeah. So uh, I'll put it this way. Uh, there's a lot of new product being built in Texas hmm. and nobody is building C-class product brand new. Yeah, of course. hundred <laughs> percent. Right. Yeah. And so uh, that's just, that's just what it is. And so it's not like there's any more new C product being built. Right. Yeah, yeah. Everything is, is a product and the C product's getting older yeah. and you know, it's being refurbished and things of that nature. And so the new product that's being built is going to be at a, a specific price point for a specific demographic, mm. right? Um, and does it price certain people out? Yeah, it might. And where do they go? Well, they'll go to B's, right? And when you have that push down, go to um, C. The demand goes. Everything <laughs> kind of flows down, right? Yeah. It does. And so, but I would tell you that from a demographic standpoint, the people that are moving to Texas, it is across the board. It's across the board. You have the high end. Uh, tech jobs going into Austin and people ready to spend a lot of money when they get there and are stunned by the pricing and how different it is versus California or something like that. Yeah. Um, and they're still making, you know, great money being able to do it, which, you know, it's going to further, you know, it, it's kind of a high tide raises all boats, right? You know, we, you may look real smart. Hey, I'm in a C class product, but with the amount of people that are moving in, everybody's everybody's benefiting associated with it. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would tell you the demographics that are moving to the state are are are, are vast and wide, right? It's it's everybody who's moving in here. Um, I live in Fort Bend County, uh, which is just west of Harris County of Houston, um, and it is considered by most to be the most diverse county in the United States of America. So think about that. I mean, we have from all walks of life, from all different types of demographics, all here in this county, which is a fairly large county. I mean, it's, you know, there's, there's a lot of people that live here, but you need all types of product to service all those different demographics, right? Yeah, 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 100%. And you see that throughout, throughout Texas, whether it be primary or secondary or treasury markets. Yeah. Sam, you for me, as uh, I can define you as advantage player. Because you know how the actual financial world works. So my question is, how you see the current recession versus uh, the similar indication on 2008 scenario and 2009? How you see the similarity or the differences between the two recession markets? Yeah, I, 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 they're different. They're very different. Well, I mean, one, uh, <laughs> you know, in 08, 09, there wasn't, there wasn't the bailout that we've just had. There wasn't, you know, the government printing you know, incredible amounts, trillions of dollars, and they're just giving it to people and giving it to businesses and giving it, just giving it away. Mm -hmm. uh, so you, uh, there's a chance you delayed the inevitable, right? Um, but I would tell you that, uh, you know, the, the inflationary environment that we're in right now, uh, you know, it was created, it was created by our Fed, right? I don't think anybody <laughs> can deny that. You, yeah. When you go out and you print, you know, two out of every five dollars in a matter of 24 months, uh, that's going to have impact on the economy. Um, and so you're seeing some of the ramifications of that and them trying to slow that process with these interest rates going up. Mm -hmm. um, the, you know, the, the quantitative tightening is probably one of the bigger differences between 08 and 09 uh, and right now. So we've had this quantitative easing going on and not to get too complex, but you know, you've had the Fed pumping a lot of money into uh, 
into the the system, right? And buying a lot of the bonds and, and adding to their balance sheet, right? And in the last couple of years, it's ballooned, right? So you've gone from from four trillion to nine trillion dollars in debt, and a large portion of that being like the MBS market. You know, the Fed mm -hmm. has two point seven trillion dollars in mortgage-backed securities, and so when it was almost like free money in the single-family market, and people just borrowing rates, you know, at three percent for thirty years, well, there was a buyer for all that debt. Yeah, and that buyer has gone away, and now you're seeing some of the ramifications of that, um, and I and it it'll probably even get a little worse. Uh, going forward. So you've, you've seen just kind of a shut off in the single family market. Well, part of that is, you know, the, one of the big players, the fed isn't out there buying all that debt anymore. Yeah. Um, they're yeah. trying to slow that all down. And so, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's from a commercial standpoint, you know, we've kind of gone through all the rental relief stuff and that's, that's really kind of ended at this point. There's, there's still some out there, uh, maybe not, so much federally backed, but you're now getting more into a normalized market in my world. Um, and, you know, nobody had the issues that we had in 08, 09, because there was just a ton of money pumped into the system, right? Um, you know, for the guys that took the, the deferrals and things that were granted to them, I, I kind of thought that was a double-edged sword. We never did any of that. Um, I thought there was just, there was too much, uh, stickiness into your business and, and too much of uh, restrictions of what you could and couldn't do with your own company if you decided to do that. Um, but the CARES Act, you know, it, it, it probably helped a few people out. It helped a lot of individuals by just giving them money. But I, I would tell you, um, I don't know how well it was utilized. Um, you know, we could, you know, talk about C-class product. I mean, there'd be, we knew when people got checks, right? Um, it wasn't necessarily that um, most of them came and paid all their rent, but you could go to the dumpster and you could see brand new large screen TVs or Xbox boxes and things like that because they were pumping that money into the economy too. And that helped, right? And you take that away, things will slow down, which is what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Uh, I, I think you mentioned something now I would like to ask you about, about the market itself. How do you see the physical um occupancy on on Houston market or uh, all of the actual corridor of uh, Texas how do you see the actual physical uh, occupancy rate on on the states yeah I mean I, I would say as an overall we're we're it would be called it would be stable I mean you'd be stabilized so well well north of 90 uh, oh, okay. at this point oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I would I would say as a whole too uh, that way and so um, you know we're still we're still kind of towards the tail end of peak leasing season right now. Hmm. And so for those properties that probably aren't in that 90, they're probably doing the few things that they need to do to get to that point uh, hmm. as we enter into the fall months. Uh, but uh, there's demand for the product uh, that's out there. And so you, you'll have some people employing different marketing strategies, but as an overall from a physical standpoint, um, yeah, I mean, we're into the nineties for sure. Um, it's, I will tell you, you know, as an asset manager and, and we asset manage all of our properties, we really, we look at it, but we look at it less. We look more at economic occupancy. Yeah. That's actually everything that we track. That's actually yeah. how we, we rank all of our uh, property management companies and groups. Uh, we actually rank them from an economic standpoint. Um, and for the most part too, collections have been pretty strong for us. You know, you do have some holdovers, um, 
you know, for COVID and the things like that. And, you know, people that have been gaming the system, but those have been a lot fewer and far between for us. And our economic is running real close to physical. Uh, at Which least. is great. Anything above 90 yeah. as economic, this is an important thing because always uh, the, the actual giveaway here is the occupancy is 97, but the actual economic is 80s. This is a problem when you, you yeah. don't able to collect the actual rent. Because of, uh, as you mentioned, some reliefs or um, some help from the government or uh, recession, people losing their jobs, uh, not paying. So this is the major, I think, uh, element here. But you're saying that uh, in your market, you're keeping this analysis close by to the actual physical occupancy. Correct. And so, and we're, we're pretty vigilant, so we're on it, right? But I mean, you talk about things like underwriting or things of that nature. I mean, we're when we underwrite, we underwrite, everybody typically underwrites their economic occupancy. This is what I'm going to collect, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so if you haven't made some adjustments associated with, you know, bad debt um, or any other collection issues or concessions or things that mm -hmm. you may have to do to be able to keep that economic number, um, you're really doing a disservice. I mean, you really need to build that into your, into your underwriting models because one, it's a reality. Um, and, and two, it's you, you, when you're trying to project returns or things of that nature, it's got to be based on the actual cash that you're collecting, yeah. not based upon, Hey, I have somebody in that unit. That's great. But unless they're paying, they shouldn't be there. hundred percent. And this is basically, this is a difference between a newbies as an, as a sponsor and an experienced sponsor who know how to underwrite the deal conservatively. One of them, as you mentioned, the concessions, the physical, and the economic uh, uh, collection. Uh, my next question for your business model is two things, to be honest, is how you see or the upside for you to partner with active syndicators, and at the same time, what was more appealing for you, the syndication model or the fund model? Yeah, so... Um... Uh, you know, I'll answer the first one. So we we absolutely do partner with other syndicators. So we'll do co-GP deals and we'll do lead GP deals. And a lot of times it's strategic in nature for us. So uh, like we have a deal uh, that we've been doing now for about a year and a half. And our, our co-GP in that deal, it was a full gut remodel deal, right? And we knew it was going to require boots on the ground, construction management, a lot of that other stuff. And uh, the GP that we brought in for that, very strong in that. That was really his his wheelhouse. I mean, he's been a builder since the 90s. He knows exactly what he's looking at. And so we brought him in um, to be able to help with that oversight and the consistency of it too, so that we can finish out the product and get to the returns that, were, that are desired for the investors associated. So we will do strategic partnerships mm. um, uh, that way, in particular because of, um, you know, uh, knowledge gaps really. Right. And so uh, we, we also, we just did a co GP deal last month in Savannah, Georgia. Mm -hmm. uh, we are very, we're very good in Texas. We understand the market really well. We are boots on the ground here. We know everything that we think we need to know for those particular areas before we get into those deals. Um, this particular deal was in Savannah, Georgia. And for lack of better words, we're not experts there. We're just not. Uh, we are experts, though, in financials and uh, doing the asset management and things of that nature and so in underwriting. And so uh, the deal worked from our world, but we 
we weren't going to be the lead on that deal because we weren't going to be the boots on the ground. We don't have that bandwidth to be able to get out there. And so, you know, we're, we define where we're going to be. Um, and we prefer to be the lead on anything in the state of Texas um, and bring in those strategic apart partners. And if it's outside of the state of Texas, we're probably going to be a co-GP with it and not be the lead boots on the ground uh, because of that knowledge gap. Uh, you know, I, I would love to say we know everything about everything everywhere, <laughs> but uh, the reality is we just don't. Um, and, you know, knowing your lane and when to stay in it um, inevitably takes out risk and makes the investors more money. Um, and then your second question was the fund or doing a rate of syndication. Yeah. So I'll give you a very honest answer to this. What a lot of people won't, won't probably say um, is that when you're raising money, right? And let's just say you're wanting to diversify out, you're going to sell that, right? That's what you're selling to investors. We're going to diversify out and bring in a whole bunch of deals. Um, with where we're at, we may have a particular investor goes, he'll go, let's just say he'll go $500,000 into every deal we do. And if we do a fund where we're going to go do four deals, right, he will do his $500,000. And even though we're doing four deals, he'll say, well, I'm done. I give you my $500,000. Whereas if I'd done it individually, he would have given us $2 million. Okay. Right. And so from an equity perspective, I think it's easier to raise from an individual basis, but from a, uh, from an ownership perspective, because I've invested in both too. I actually prefer that just the syndication deals because one, I know exactly what I own, how much of it I own, and the focus is on that particular deal. So the information that I get isn't a fund information. I'm getting all the specifics to that specific deal. Um, I think the fund does offer, like I said, diversity. And you can have diverse, not just amongst uh, areas, but product too. I've seen different products put into different funds. Um, so there's pluses and minuses. So there's pros and cons to both. Uh, but as an operator, I prefer to go syndication routes because it's very specific. Here's what the deal is. This is what you own. You don't have to know that you own, you know, half a percent of this one and two and a half percent of this one and three percent of this one all within the fund. You own this part of this deal. And simple is just easier for me. Um, I'm kind of a simple guy that way. And so most of the investors, if it's easier to explain, to them, that's what I prefer to do. So. I think also there's a, oh, there was an edge for your background financing on raising capital. So how you managed to leverage this uh, experience on one of the most important subjects, which is raising capital? Yeah, so uh, I've been doing it for a long time. Yeah. You know, I, I, I mean, I've, I've done it in other industries too, right? And so, uh, <clears throat> you know, mainly for banking. So most of our banks were were capital raised through local investors. And so I've been around it for a real long time. Um, and all it really is, you know, syndication is really, really simple. It really is. Um, and I like to break things down to simple concepts, right? You are there to pair money with an opportunity, whatever you're doing, yeah. right? You're pairing money with an opportunity. And are you doing enough work to able to concisely and clearly communicate what the opportunity is and that it'll reach the goals associated with that the money wants. That's all it really is. That's really all it is. I mean, I hate to be so right. simple about it, but that's what it is, right? right? And so if you're able to communicate clearly and concisely, here's the opportunity that we have, here's the money that we need, 
and does this match up and work, that typically is a successful raise. Closing the deal. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, the successful yeah. raise, right? I mean, that is that's what it is. So I think my uh, last question will be: um, Who was your influential mentor on your career? Yeah, so uh, most of my guys are banking world because that's yeah. how I got started, right? Um, and so, but you know, it, it's interesting too because when you're a small bank banker, right? So when you're you really are entrepreneurial, you are building a business to effectively one day sell it. Yeah, I mean that's actually how I started. We were building a business to sell it. It's just a different avenue that we took, right? Versus a, a piece of real estate, we did it with the bank, right? right? And so. Banks are extremely diverse. I mean, I have tons of products you can do from your local car loan to your high-end office downtown, right? Yeah. You know, kind of everything in between and all the different businesses that and services that do uh, associated with all of that. Um, but I had a mentor uh, who started a, a local bank here in Houston, which is now a very large publicly traded bank. Um, and I was fortunate enough to get connected with him when I was in college. Um, and he pretty much showed me all the all the ins and outs of effectively doing business and how to do it and the right way to do it. And so it's a little bit more old school. Um, and and it's you know, it's it's actually translated real well. Right. I mean, I you know, I was a handshake banker for a long time. I mean, there, were, there really weren't that many of those kinds of guys. So I was big on character. I mean, if, if I knew that you will find a way to pay me back. You know, the numbers really were secondary. The business was really secondary. Um, you know, the real estate, right? When you're looking at real estate deals, if I know that we can make, if I have the right team and we can we can put the deal together, I'm ready to go to battle with them. The real estate's almost secondary. I'm ready to go to battle with these people who are going to do what it takes to make sure that this deal is successful and the real estate's secondary, which is why, you know, I told you earlier at the beginning, back the jockey, not the horse, because, you know, if you know that there are people behind that who are going to do everything they can to make sure that that deal is successful and they put in the time to do the due diligence, they put in the time to to the underwriting, you're taking a lot of that risk out of the deal. So, you know, we measure risk real big here. I mean, that's a big deal to us to continue to take risk out of the deal associated with uh, the investment. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm conservative by nature. What I tell people is, I, you know, I let a lot of pitches go. There are a lot of deals we probably could have done, but when I swing, we hit. Um, and it's, and it's because I'm, I'm ready to pull the trigger on that. And I'm going to make sure that it is right down the middle and we're going to be able to hit it fine. Right. And so, uh, you know, and particularly over the last several years, I let a lot of deals go that we absolutely could have done. We would have made great money on. Mm -hmm. Right. But for one reason or another at the time, it just wasn't going to work or there was there was uh, there was risk out there that I didn't want to take. Um, and so I'll, I'll take a lot of pitches. Right. So we're not going to go out there and do 100 deals a year. We'll go out there and do a handful of deals, hmm. but they're going to be the right deals uh, to put the investors in the best position to succeed and for us in the best position to succeed. And so I've had you know several different mentors, but most of them were in the financial world. Um, and teaching me how to uh, observe and find risk associated in deals hmm. um, and to look at what the, you know, the, the plus and minuses are before you take that risk. So if the, if the positives outweigh the negatives, then is, it's maybe acceptable. 
Mm. Uh, but when you're taking another person's money uh, to put in the deal, that burden is heavy. And so yeah. you really got to make sure that you're making the best and wisest decision for not just yourself and your company, but for all the money that you're taking associated with it as well. I think my favorite question to my guest always would be, how does he think the superpower is? Superpower. Wow. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm heavy analytical, uh, heavy analytical. But one of the things, and I, and I get to teach on it, I get to, I get to speak on it, is uh, I deal with a lot of high IQ guys. Um, and because of that, they have, uh, you know, not, not to knock them, but a lot of them have lower EQ. And marrying those two, and I always, I, I call it asset management, property management, because they really are different, right? Mm -hmm. But figuring out the best way to marry those two has been a great superpower of mine, because it's actually been what's been part of the success, right? And, and, and blending those two together, which are normally combative forces uh, to work together, um, that's been kind of the, the superpower in this industry that I have. I, I mean, I'm not scared of much. I have three teenagers, uh, in this household right now. So I, there's, no, there's not much that can scare me, right? Um, and so, uh, but that that probably would be it, is the ability to blend those two and, and, to, and to bridge that communication gap. So do you agree on less IQ you have, more money you're going to make? Not necessarily. I mean, I, I would tell you, uh, Elon Musk is an extremely high IQ guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Bill Gates is an extremely high yeah. IQ guy. Yeah. I mean, even Warren Buffett, he's an extreme high IQ guy. Yeah. Um, and, and so pro probably not. But I do think that the guys that are willing to take risk and just roll their sleeves up and get to work, hmm. they're going to be successful. And that doesn't matter what you're doing, right? I mean, you could be very successful. I mean, I, there are, I mean, there are plumbers out here making a fortune right now. Hmm. that are not college educated, but man, they're ready to roll their sleeves up and work and they're making serious money if that's how you view success. I mean, yeah. uh, I, I think success is pretty subjective. So, 100%. Uh, yeah. How's the people can follow your success on yeah, uh, so, social? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, mean, I, would, I would say join it. The website's probably the easiest way to get to it. So we're, we're sunset-capital.com. From there, you can get onto our investor portal and we, we do a monthly newsletter. Uh, we do pretty, pretty often updates. Um, and so, yeah, we're on social too. So Instagram and Facebook, just look for sunset capital. Uh, we're there. And so, uh, we don't post as much as we probably should, but, uh, you know, we're working on that right now. Um, and, and it's pretty easy, you know, I'm, I'm fine. Every, if anybody wants to email, we have an investor at sunset capital.com and, uh, we're pretty vigilant about getting back to everybody with that stuff too. I think it was fun today. You had a lot of information about Texas. I hope that you like the show today, but we're really happy to bring you again to talk more about your success and more about Texas. And yeah, again, I appreciate your time. Yeah, I'm honored and I appreciate it too, but I really appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Sam. Thanks a lot. Thanks, bud.